I was twenty when it happened. It was a dark autumn night on the banks of the River Elbe, the coal fires of Hamburg's stolid and crumbling tenements adding their chemical tang to the evening's damp mist. I'd been handed my match ticket as we left Feldstrasse U-Bahn station and then headed up the stairs in a one-way throng. Everyone around me was singing, stamping and letting fall emptied cans of Holston. They rattled percussively on the walkways. Through the turnstiles with a creak, mumbled thanks, a drop of fag ash and half a ripped ticket pushed back. Then up the dozen steps and into the Nordkurve, just as Hans Alba's Auf der Reeperbahn started to splutter and crackle through the megaphone speakers fixed to the overhanging roof of the main stand and the stanchions. Smoke and steam rose from the crowd, thousands of shining eyes turning towards the dew-speckled field as kickoff grew near. Someone brought me a bratwurst with a ripple of sweet mustard along its glistening top edge and a foaming beer in a plastic glass. Just then, the teams ran out, a roar went up, a floodlight failed and everybody laughed. I laughed too, so loud I almost spat out some sausage. So this is football, I thought. And everything changed. That was an extract from the brand new, wonderful book, Square Peg Round Ball, Football, TV and Me, by Ned Bolting. Published by Bloomsbury, priced at $14.99, and available from the When Saturday Comes shop and other booksellers. Welcome to When Saturday Comes, the half-decent podcast that strikes the ball through a forest of legs and beyond a hapless goalkeeper. I'm Daniel Gray, and joining me are When Saturday Comes magazine editor Andy Lyons and writer Harry Pearson. This is an online recording given current restrictions, but hopefully it isn't too far away from the usual quality. Thanks to those who have joined the When Saturday Comes Supporters Club on Patreon so far. If you haven't but have a couple of quid to spare to do so, please have a look at patreon.com slash when Saturday comes. Harry, any sweet snacks for us this time? Are you on a post-lockdown pre-season health regime? No, I've gone I've gone crazy now that I, I, I bought wagon wheels in Waitrose. It was actually in Waitrose, so obviously I had to buy them in a slightly knowing and ironic way. Oh, it's my guilty pleasure, wagon wheels. I don't normally buy them. Um, so I've got those. And I've got also got a very strange from Pound Stretcher, a, a, a pack of six chunky hazelnut Kit Kats, which for some reason it says celebrating 20 years, 1999 to 2019, have a 90s break. I, I don't know what, what, it doesn't explain what it's celebrating, but quite a lot of the writing on the box is Cyrillic. So perhaps something in... Something in the former Soviet Union that we're not privy to that they're celebrating, and it says on the back on the side it says and it says remember using pager codes to send messages, remember how loud the dial-up was when using the internet, remember how high your platform shoes were. What nineties thing? Platform <laughs> shoes? I'm not sure, but anyway, God. maybe in Belarus it was. I don't know, but anyway, so we've got those, and I'm also. Um, um, got fingers of fudge as well, which if it was oh. if it was the nineteen seventies would have provoked a joke about Gary Sprague, perhaps. Everyone likes a bit of observational humour on the chocolate, like those Kit Kat boxes, don't they? That's nice to have a bit. Well, of it's, routine, it's certainly right? brightened. It certainly brightened my week. <laughs> Remembering pager bleeps. Remember white dog dirt says the back of the fudge packet <laughs> <laughs> before you taste it. <laughs> Harry, what's the latest on being able to attend some Northern League games? Well, it's a very complicated message on the Northern League's um, website, which says that they they might they should be coming back on Saturday, September the fifth, but that all depends on um, the situation. Government advice they they have suspended the Brooks Miles Memorial Cup for a season, 
And it does say that because they don't want people handling paper, that there will be no programs. <laughs> and I just it did make me think that during the during the whole of this lockdown, no one has really thought about the ground hoppers and the and the agony that they're enduring. And now they'll be able to go to non-league games but not get a programme, so they'll have no proof that they were ever there. I don't know what they're going to do. Maybe they'll have to give them a... Well, they can't. If they give them a card, they can't stamp it. I don't know how they're going to know. I'm going to have that... How, no one will believe them. It's going to send some of them over the edge. <laughs> it could do, couldn't it? They could, they could be a mass, a mass, you know, mass protest from ground hoppers. Imagine what that would be like. Very quiet. <laughs> Very quiet with the only the only sound the, the the rattling of carrier bags. Andy, how are you enjoying your new freedoms? I believe you went to see a Peter Beardsley art exhibition or something like that. Yes, uh, first proper day out for four months to, to the Tate Gallery. Um, a friend is a member there and was able to sign me in. Now, Aubrey Beardsley from oh. the arty side of Peter's family. Um, <laughs> I decided, having looked at all these drawings, uh, I don't really have the right build to be an aesthete of fan de siècle or otherwise. Really, I'm not wan, W-A-N, or, or, or desiccated enough. Um, I, I saw a big row on the tube on the way there between... Um, a man who wasn't wearing a mask on someone who was, with a non-mask wearer who was quite aggressive about being asked to put a mask on, presumably has a lot of confrontations like that. Maybe that's why he does it. Perhaps he just travels up and down on the tube all day, getting that <laughs> testosterone going by um, by refusing to wear his mask. Um, not directly related to, to, to the lockdown, but one thing I did want to mention, I thought it ought to be shared on the podcast, um, it's from the uh, WC uh, Weekly Newsletter. Barry Fry recently, who's a Peterborough director, now talking about the striker Ivan Tony, who Celtic wanted to buy but haven't offered enough money yet, said, good strikers are like dinosaurs. They are an endangered species. <laughs> someone someone needs to tell Barry about the dinosaurs. I think he didn't need to do it soon. He's going to be distraught. I mean, he's, uh, do you think he's been to wildlife parks for years and wondered why there are never any Triceratops or Stegosaurus? Yeah. He's, where are all that, where are all he's the seen Jurassic lads? Park and thought it yeah. was a documentary. That's, that's all you can imagine. He knows where that there's an island where they've been cloned. I've been tremendously excited today because I received a text message informing me that Ross County have added Ross Doohan to their set of goalkeepers. So their three goalkeepers are now Ross Laidlaw, Ross Monroe and Ross Doohan. Ross County with three Ross goalkeepers is a tremendous record and I hope they they continue the trend and eventually they have to sign Ross Kemp and Ross from Friends to play up front because they run out. You feel that clubs do that deliberately. It's nice when they make the extra effort. It's like when Norwich had Rudd and Ruddy as their goalkeepers, remember? (laughs) What what, what else could they have? Rudd-esque. Ruddish. Andy, Harry and I have been discussing Middlesbrough's record at Fortress Riverside. No wins since 2019. What are some of your own favourite losing runs over the years? Well, typically, and I suppose I have to apologise in advance to Fulham fans for this, but I have to point out that Fulham have lost 22 consecutive league games at Everton. A run that goes back to 1960-61. The one there in the FA Cup on, in 1975 on their way to the final. But it's a bizarre thing, because I mean, there must have been times in that run... Well, there were at least a couple of seasons when Fulham finished ahead of Everton in the league, but to not even get a draw is bizarre. All those different players on both sides over that time. Another one that um, sticks in the mind, I suppose, when Mick McCarthy took over at Sunderland, March 2003, um, they'd lost five league games in a row, which is what when Howard Wilkinson got sacked. Then McCarthy was in charge for the last nine games of the season, all of which they lost. 
scoring only twice in the process. That's some bluff, no-nonsense Yorkshire losing streak. <laughs> Exploded the myth of the new manager bounce as well. Of course, another one, I suppose, is um, is Derby in, in 2007-8. Only one win all season, 11 points, worst ever in the top flight. Um, Paul Jewell didn't win any of his 24 games in charge after he took over from Billy Davis. Though their worst run of the feature was only six, the last six games of the season. So they did sneak in a draw occasionally. The closest they got to wins, Newcastle got a draw in the 87th minute. With teams in general on losing runs, you wonder what must training be like? Because I mean, presumably they're working on various things like set pieces and stuff, and sometimes it goes okay and spirits are raised a bit and they think, okay, right, this time, this time, and then, then they can see the first goal and they say, oh no, it's happened again, you know, and then off they go. I think Paul Jewell was involved in an exciting scandal involving a car bonnet around that time, as far as I remember as well. Yes, that's right. The phrase, um, is that the milkman? People will, will remember from, from that, <laughs> that episode, but I better not say any more about that. That, that, was, that, was the, that was the tape you'd pay most money not to see. Yes, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's fair to say. <laughs> and losing runs for you, Harry? Well, so, you know, the, the weird thing with Borough was that in the post-lockdown period, they were far better in front of no fans away from home than they were in front of no fans at home. But it's always, I've always wondered what, why teams, why there is a home advantage in football. I've never really seen, you know, what it came from really because the the noise is the same for all the players, isn't it? I mean, it's only it's only in your head. It's not like if you're playing in the NFL and you have to travel from Los Angeles to New York in December, where there's obviously massive time and climatic differences. If you're going from Liverpool to Leeds, it doesn't really apply, does it? Um, I think that one of the places that seems to be a, it seems to be the sort of home of uh, of winless streaks is the is the Northern Premier League and the uh, New Mills had a had a, a such a disastrous run. I think you know when you've had a disaster, really a truly disastrous run when you feature in a TV advert voiced by Harry Redknapp, which <laughs> New Mills did. They they lost twenty six consecutive League and Cup games, and they went through the whole of the Northern Premier League Division One. They were and they went through the whole season without winning a game, finishing with three points from three draws. Um, they did go through a lot of managers as well. I think Sean Goater was there as assistant for a while. Uh, conceded 136 goals, and I think the last game of the season was a 9-0 defeat at Spennymore. So that was a, was a pretty fun. And, but the, the weird thing was that in the middle of the run, the Daily Telegraph did a feature on one of those. Uh, you know, Is this the worst team in Britain? And the chairman in the in the interview said, "We're not scared of anyone." Well, you know, <laughs> you don't have to be; you just get beaten. Because um, Hyde, Hyde FC as well, they were a sort of similar. I think Andy and I might well have seen them play at Spennymore in an FA Cup game. It was either Hyde or Hyde United or possibly Hive. There's too many teams around there with the same names. Like they, I think they had a... They Wasn't it 20... Sorry? Wasn't it Ashton United? Oh, oh, was no, Ashton. I might be, I might was it Ashton? Oh, that's Maybe right. I'm, because... I'm, I, I don't want to get into my Bee Gees. <laughs> no, I think you're right, Ashton, actually, Andy, because I think there is also Ashton and Ashton United, isn't there? Oh, there's Kurt, there's Kurt and Ashton. Ashton United, and oh. uh, for anybody still awake, there's Ashton Athletic and another one. There's four, <laughs> two each from Ashton, two each from Ashton Underline and Ashton in Makerfield. 
None Ooh. of which have any connection to the Bee Gees. I'd just like to point <laughs> out again. It's a, it's a minefield round there, isn't it? It is. Oh, sucked into the vor- the Ashton Vortex. <laughs> well, anyway, Hyde. They, I think Hyde... Yeah, they were, let, let's just say it was Hyde anyway. Let's though. just say it was... We'll pretend it was Hyde, but you're right, it was Ashton. Um, Spenny Ball won 1-0 with a penalty, by the way. I do remember that. I can't remember who was playing, but anyway. Um, Hyde, I think Hyde as well had a big... I think they went 27 matches. Um, in 2013-14 without winning a game. And they actually had a Twitter account called Have Hyde Won Yet, to which the answer was generally no. So I think those are... Andorra as well went along. I think they Andorra had a very long streak, I think 86 defeats in a row, which finally, I remember it finally ended when they beat San Marino on my birthday in 2017. Just for you. A little gift from the men from the Pyrenees. Andorra also, coming back to one of our earlier themes, have had at least two players called Andorra playing for them. Will that be the criteria for getting picked, do you think? Anybody who's called Andorra, provided (laughs) you can get the shorts on, is in the team. My own favourite is Cowden Beath in the early 1990s, finally promoted back to the second tier of Scottish football. In April, the main stand burnt down, and that following season, no home wins at all. 13 points, 109 conceded and over three seasons they failed to win at home for 101 weeks which feels like some sort of film title two relegations and as Andy was imagining the players there I was imagining the fans how you make yourself go every fortnight in the middle of one of those runs As ever, the When Saturday Comes Letters page is tremendously enjoyable, this time in issue 401. Andy, which letters did you particularly enjoy? Uh, Well, last month someone wrote in to say they'd recently completed a crossword they'd found in the 1940s football annual. Uh, Now we've heard that Jim Taylor has replied to say that he found during lockdown a lot of his old scrapbooks of Spurs matches from 1950 to 61, but found loads of um, clippings that hadn't been stuck in by him when he was a child, presumably. So he's now stuck them in. So he's now um, taken 60 years to stick down the clippings that he, he, he collected in, in 1961, um, which is a fine effort, I think. Also, um, during lockdown, uh, Ben Moore wrote in to say that he um, he found a 2005-2006 Wolves shirt that his dad had won at some function that came as an authentication slip confirming it had been donated by the club. The only signature on it was that of Jeremy Ali Adier, We'd only played 14 games for, in, for Wolves in total. So as he says, for most clubs, um, full sign, squad sign shirts and balls are as common on eBay as discarded clay pipes used to be on the foreshore of the Thames. Could this item actually be of greater interest, like a flop single that sold just seven copies on its release and is now a holy grail for vinyl collectors? Well, perhaps he's, perhaps he'll find out. And Harry, which letters caught your eye? Um, well, I like the, the letter about um, what, I ha- what I have to call um, Sheffield United's relegation hoodoo, I think, um, that they were relegated every 12 years. And um, A.R. Whitehead of Bramall writes in saying, we, we, we were awaiting 2020 with trepidation. Now, thanks to Chris Wilder and his team, this jinx, jinx indeed, good word, has been well and truly smashed. We can now approach 2033 with confidence. So I, I enjoyed that letter very. I thought that was good. I like the idea of someone that someone's kept track. Um, Mr. Whitehead has since written in and pointed out that um, were we printed a 12-year relegation cycle, it should of course have been 13-year relegation. Cycle. <laughs> As it stands, makes the makes the years quoted irrelevant. I think it was a handwritten letter. 
And I think there may have been some. Um, no, I see eighty-one. If I'd looked at it properly, eighty-one to ninety-four. That is that is thirteen years, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. So the basic facts are correct. Uh, it's just the, the the gap between the years was was incorrect. So I just right. like to clarify. So we'll just yes. So the thirteen-year so hoodie. Yes. Well, thirteen. It's a hoodie. Well, so no, it is better, isn't it? Thirteen. No wonder it's better. a jinx and a hoodie. And an Indian sign. And an Indian sign. He doesn't advance any reason for it, though. Surely, surely some kind of curse by travelling folk would have been involved. Yeah, somebody stole a witch's pie from a windowsill or something. (laughs) (laughs) I'm now enjoying Andy's regular corrections and clarifications part of the podcast. It's become a a good feature. (laughs) Let's hope it's not going to become the biggest section. But we do do get the occasional mistake. There are the occasional problems with handwritten letters, I would say. BG's Corner, it's going to be called. Yes, that's right. Yeah, The Gibb Brothers welcome you to Andy's... Andy's Ashton Corner. Andy, issue 401 is out now. What's in the magazine this time? Well, we have the return of the Match of the Month feature, which uh, had a couple of months' absence. Uh, we got a writer, Mike Wally, into Wembley, um, to completely empty Wembley, of course, to see the League Two player final, Northampton versus Exeter. Um, the strangeness of the occasion being brought home when um, Exeter's Dean Moxie is sent off. And as Mike writes, there's no sound at all from the pitch as Moxie is sent off. I only realised what's happened when Talk Sports' Sam Matterface, 30 feet behind me, shouts, It's a red card! <laughs> I wonder if commentators do that kind of thing generally at games. Do, do, do they tend to shout things out for the benefit of the, of the fellow journalists, possibly? Um, we've also got the annual WC Writers' Competition uh, winners this uh, month. Uh, the winner... The show's by Kilmarnock fan Keith Dunlop, who writes about how he, along with several other Kilmarnock fans, had bought a ticket for the Europa League qualifier against Partizan Belgrade in Serbia, having assumed that Kilmarnock would beat Connor's key nomads of Wales in the previous round, which, of course, turned out to be a wrong assumption. So there was just the one Connor's key fan there, apparently, who's a photographer, and loads of uh, Kilmarnock fans have decided to make a, make a, a day of it. Um, one of the, the two runners-up uh, by Ian Grant is about going to empty grounds and how they have what he describes as a, 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 an eerie and magical atmosphere. He's talking in particular mm. about his local ground at Hastings and also he mentions Vicarage Road in Wat, uh, Watford where these days um, NHS staff from a nearby hospital are allowed to eat their lunch in the in the stands. Um, the other runner-up is by uh, uh, Flora Snelson who talks about how she was in lockdown, with a, had been in lockdown with a friend and how they, as supporters they started to do commentaries and old games on YouTube where they didn't know the outcome of, of, of the game, including one involving the teams they support, uh, Leeds and Everton. Um, we also have a piece by Gordon Cairns, uh, one of our regular Scottish writers, about how goalkeepers often used to wear jerseys on match days, they'd swapped with the goalkeeper. So Gary Sprake wore an Italian national team jersey when Leeds played Celtic in the European Cup in 1970. Um, Alan Ruff had several national team jerseys he used to wear instead of the Scotland one. And Jan van Beveren of Holland once played in an international match in the early 70s uh, wearing one of Gordon Banks's Stoke shirts. And Harry, have any pieces in issue 401 caught your eye? Well, the, the season in brief uh, did because it was a very, it was a particularly traumatic season as it is. It's covering the um, the Division Two sixty eight sixty nine was a particularly traumatic season for me as a as a very young Middlesbrough fan because Middlesbrough were actually top of the table and fell away towards the end of the season. 
And, and in my recollection, they had to win the last two games to get promoted. But actually, when I look at the table now, I think that would have been impossible. But the, the penultimate game was at home to Berry, and Berry had already been relegated. Bobby Collins was playing for them, I suspect. And I remember sitting in the bob end, and of course, Borough lost to Berry. And I was, I, I was bitterly, I was bitterly angry. And then it was made worse by the fact that all the old men around me just said, well, they've lost on purpose because the directors don't want the cost of top flight football, <laughs> which suggested that we would never, ever get promoted. Um, and I do remember that season because Dave Mackay was playing. I, I saw the game against Derby and I was very excited to see Dave Mackay because he was in the Guinness Book, Book of Records as having the, the hardest shot in football. And I don't know what I expected, but I remember being very disappointed that he, at no point did he kick the ball at what appeared to be 72 miles an hour or whatever the, whatever his record was. I don't know what I was expecting to see, sort of lightning shooting out of the back of the ball or something probably. So, yeah, so I, so I enjoyed that very much, even though, as I say, it brought back very unhappy memories. How were they measuring the Dave Mackay shot at the time? Was there a gun and an experiment type thing going on? It's probably just a man with a stopwatch. <laughs> it's a man with a stopwatch had to kick it between two fixed points. But he was in for years. I'm pretty sure he was in there for years as the hardest shot. Well, as has been noted on this podcast before, his niece is my hairdresser. So when I finally get my hair cut, I will ask her about that and see if they've got the trophy in the house still. Yes, ask about the Guinness Book of Records. Whether they got free copies and whether they got to know the McWhirters <laughs> very well. Yes, a, 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 a soiree at the McWhirters' house would be quite an evening, I think, <laughs> or one way or another. <laughs> short, short commons, as my dad would have said. <laughs> And, and Harry, you've written about your old neighbour, the late Jack Charlton. Tell us about that piece. Yeah, well, when he, when he died, when Jack died, I, I, the, the the thing that interested me, or one of the things that I noticed was that the the things that people put on Facebook and social media were, were, were personal memories of him and little stories where they'd encountered him on the train. There was a f- very funny story in Fly Me to the Moon where a guy had sat with him on the train and they'd passed some uh, sort of big lilac bush and he'd said, What's that? And Big Jack just looked out and said, I don't know, it's just blue stuff. <laughs> and and everyone's memory of him were these little personal stories, whereas normally, so like for example, when George Best died, all the anecdotes that were trotted out about George Best were basically anecdotes that George Best himself told. Mm. They weren't they weren't personal things, but with Jack Charlton, it seemed like he'd he'd been sort of he he felt like part of people's lives in a way that's quite rare for someone mm. so famous. And I think that was one of his one of his sort of singular achievements was to be managed to sort of stay true to himself, even though he was so well known without ever becoming a self parody, you know, he, he, so that was quite, so that was really, so that's really what I wrote about was that, you know, and the fact that he, he sort of touched a lot of people's lives and was in, and people felt that they knew him, which again, yeah. I think it is quite an extraordinary thing to remain that ordinary when you're actually that so famous and successful. The, the thing about him, I, I was sort of, have in mind is that he was always very good as a panelist or a co-commentator on the TV because he just had a very engaging way of talking somehow um, which again goes back to that thing of being he obviously had lots of conversations with different people he he wasn't cliched he was always very clear in his own view of, of what was going on even if his interpretation of football sometimes was based around an idea an idea he wouldn't shift from like the idea that defenders hated turning so the best way to play was long balls that would make them defend facing their own goal and he kind of stuck to that throughout his, his management career. I also remember it being suggested that he had to adapt a bit to some of the methods that Leeds began to employ very successfully under Don Revy and that he wasn't inclined to be a particularly cynical sort of player, but he became more like that. Perhaps there's something that came a bit more naturally to some of the other players, maybe like Johnny Giles and Norman Hunter, but he had to sort of 
adapt having been there for a few years before Revy took over it wasn't necessarily his natural approach to things but you had to sort of um, adjust to it make sure you never miss an issue of when Saturday comes by subscribing today not only will you have the magazine delivered to your door and save on the shop price but you'll also receive discounts on books and t-shirts plus get free access to our complete digital archive which stretches all the way back to issue one in 1986 go to shop .wsc.co.uk for more information. It was notable, Harry, that Jack Charlton didn't win his first England cap until in his late 20s, I think. Was there a particular reason for that? I think that it, I think it, it, his career only really took off when Don Revie arrived at Leeds. You know, he'd been there for a while under Rach Carter. I think he didn't much care for. And I think you know, he was he was sort of I think he was probably quite an awkward character and and I think also possibly with him as well that that there's a great, there's a famous line in a Clint Eastwood Western, you know, man's got to know his limitations. And I think that he probably learned his limitations. And that was part of his, the reasons for his success as a manager and as a player was that he never aspired to be something that he wasn't. He never wanted to be Bobby Moore. You know, he played the way he played and maybe he came to understand that and, and knew how to work within the the skills that he had to maximise those and forget about the other things, which is what he did as a coach as well at Middlesbrough. He came in, he saw the players that they had and the talent that they had and what they could do and fitted their tactics kind of around that, I think. And so I think that's partly what partly the reason that his success came, you know, as, a, as an international. I think he might have been 31 when he was first picked, which you know, which was in 1965. So so it was it was it was a, it was just the right time. Um, so yeah, so I think that you know that was I think that's probably why he came so late to things. Andy, do any other players that came late to international football come to mind? Uh, well, one classic case really is Ronnie Simpson, Celtic goalkeeper, when they won the European Cup in 1967. He was the oldest Scottish international deputy. He's 35, and he first played for Scotland in the game where Scotland won at Wembley in '67, England's first defeat after the World Cup. He was nicknamed Fader by his teammates at Celtic because he was about in some cases like about 15 years old but he had an incredible career because he played for Newcastle in the 50s and won the FA Cup with them had also been in the British Olympic squad in 1948 when he was about 16 um, when he played for Queen's Park um, and he was later on the on the pools panel I think he might have been chairman of the pools panel uh, for a while um, there's also um, uh, Leslie Compton who I think is the oldest England uh, debutant. He's the wicketkeeper brother of uh, Dennis Compton, uh, another football cricketer. I think they're the only brothers. They won the county championship with Middlesex and they won the league with Arsenal. They'd certainly be the only brothers to have won sort of football and uh, sort of titles with football and cricket teams. Um, in recent times, uh, the oldest English uh, debutant was um, was Kevin Davis, who got his one cap. One game against Montenegro, and that kind of feels about right. Yeah, Kevin Davis, he should get one cap. <laughs> And the opponents should be Montenegro. That sort of fitted quite quite nicely for him, I think. It was like when they used to just get one cap for England B. I think Brian Dean achieved that. He may have, may have got the promotion, but I don't know what happened to England B. Um, and for you, Harry? Well, it's funny that talking about the Comptons, because in a way they, they were a bit like Bobby and Jack Charlton in the sense that, you know, Leslie Compton was a big un- uncompromising, as they said in the old times, centre-half. And then Dennis Compton was a sort of dashing winger who was the the sort of idol of schoolboys, albeit in a slightly more George Bestish manner than than Bobby Charlton, but they were the sort of similar similar kind of contrast of characters. I think um, the person I think of is uh, is Gordon Bradley, um, who made his debut for for the USA 
1973 when he was about a week shy of his 40th birthday and Gordon Bradley was born in Sunderland and he, he actually worked as a miner at Easington Colliery, uh, played football for Bradford Park Avenue in Carlisle in the 50s and then he emigrated to Canada when he was about 30, played in Canada and then he went as player coach to the New York Ukrainians of the German-American Soccer League um, before moving on to the New York Generals at the start of the North American Soccer League. So when he was picked, I say he was just, he was nearly 40. And there's a couple of strange things about his debut is that firstly, he wasn't an American citizen. So I'm not quite sure how he was eligible to play for the USA. And the other thing that when Gordon Bradley was picked to play for the USA, at that time, the manager of the USA was Gordon Bradley. So he effectively <laughs> picked, he effectively picked himself. Um, and I, I was wondering actually if he's if there've been other player managers of international teams. He was only player manager for one game against Israel, and I think he was actually only in charge for six games in total, all of which were lost. I hope that story has the ending of him moving back to Sunderland and spinning that yarn in the pubs and clubs of Wearside to never be believed by anyone. Did did he sort of say to himself ahead of picking his squad? Do you know, do you know who could do a job for us here? It's Gordon Bradley. <laughs> it's a long shot. He said. He said it's a bit of a long shot, but I'm thinking. <laughs> what I'm thinking is, I'll have to give him a fitness test. <laughs> Andy, how about successful players who will no caps at all? Well, we're, we started to do a photo feature in WC uh, on this. I'm not. I won't go through who the, who the people are. We're going to talk about. Um, but about the best and cap players, starting with uh, Jimmy Greenough uh, this month. And Jimmy Greenough's an interesting case of two brothers were the the other brother, in this case, Brian Greenough, was certainly probably the, the less talented of the two. But Brian got quite a few England caps as a sort of centre-back or defensive midfielder, where Jimmy is a sort of forward or attacking midfielder that um, didn't get any. Um, one player we will be mentioning as an uncapped player is um, Jimmy Case, who won nine major trophies while he was with Liverpool but doesn't seem to have ever been called up into, into an international squad. It's bizarre he never got a single call-up. Um, the German equivalent of him is uh, Bernd Dernberger, their Bayern midfielder of the 70s and 80s, who won 11 trophies and got no caps. And another strange one in that way is when Ajax won the three European Cups in a row in the early 70s, their goalkeeper, Heinz Stoy, never played for Holland. It's slightly bizarre that he was considered good enough for the top team in Holland at the time, but not as one of the best goalkeepers. So I suppose he wasn't that busy. Um, there's also the weird career of another Dutch goalkeeper in the 90s, uh, Rude Hesp, who played 100 games for Barcelona when Louis van Gaal was coach and was in two uh, major tournament squads for Holland. But bizarrely never got a cap, not even 45 minutes in a pre-tournament frame. So maybe he was just good at doing impressions or something. You know, like the Dutch equivalent of doing Norman Wisdom, which several England footballers seem to have done, if I remember right. I think Gordon Hill was the best known one. He even used to take his Norman Wisdom cap with him to team hotels so that the evenings must have flown by. <laughs> and Harry, any capless wonders come to mind for you? Well, well, well Andy mentioned it, but just to prove how, prove how unrehearsed this show is, because he mentions Bernd Dernberger there, which I've got, I've got notes on here. But he did, he did play for the West Germany amateur team in the 1972 Munich Olympics. And I noticed that in that West Germany amateur team, also had Uli Hernes and Otmar Hitzfeld in it, which is quite unusual. I would have thought how many people would have come out of amateur football to play at the highest level of professional football. I think that was because uh, German players up to a certain age didn't sign full-time professional contracts. So no. Uli Hernes had played for West Germany's full team, but he was like 20 or something. Oh, right, so he okay. was technically considered to be an amateur. Um, but then they they changed the regulations subsequently. So in those days, Germany's 
amateur teams included quite a few players who did go on to become professionals, but they're just quite young at the time, I think. Right. Oh, I did, oh that's good. That's good. Good explanation there, because I did wonder about it. Anyway, and the, the other thing you mentioned, Hans Stoy, that he apparently he was nicknamed Heinz, Heinz Stoy, sorry, he was nicknamed Heinz Croquette. Because he dropped the ball like it was a hot croquette, so so maybe that's why he wasn't in the Dutch international team. But he's so he was like a great big burly guy. Now I wondered who kept him out of the Dutch team really, because there was a guy Eddie Grafland who was at Feyenoord. Well, there was Jan van Beveren who I mentioned earlier who used to wear Gordon Banks' Stoke shirt, and um, Pete Shrivers, who I'll actually be talking about later on in a different uh, different context. Oh right, uh, well I shall the, move on then. The, the, the player that I thought of, uh, an English player that I thought of, was Frank Clark. Um, who won an FA Amateur Cup with Crook, uh, Fairs Cup with Newcastle, league title in the European Cup and two league cups with Forrest. And one of the sort of extraordinary things about Frank Clark was that he only scored one goal in his whole career and he played 389 games for Newcastle and didn't score. And there used to be a sort of regular kind of joke on Look North um, where they'd say, champagne's still on ice for Frank Clark. <laughs> um, and it remained on ice. It's probably still on ice now. Uh, in the in the in the dressing room at St James's Park. What about the physical cap itself? Do you know if players still get them? I couldn't quite find an answer to that. I think they used to get a cap for a certain number of games. I think mm. they didn't automatically get a cap for each game. So there were some photos of Bobby Charlton sat with 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 caps arranged in the shape of a, the the number a hundred when he got mm. his hundred caps. But he didn't have anything like a hundred actual caps. I don't think. I, I, I seem to remember someone, possibly possibly on the Saint and Greavesy, that they said that England players got a cap for every game that they played in, but Scotland players only got one cap for the season that they played the games in. <laughs> but whether that you know whether that was just a bit of banter, I don't know. But I do remember Ray, Ray Wilson when Ray Wilson sold off all his memorabilia and he sold off all his England caps. I remember there was an interview with him. And they said, oh, you know, you sold off all your England caps. When he said, well, what, I can't really wear one down the pub, can I? So it was really, they were just a useless thing. They had a nice, they had a sort of tassel on the top, I Lovely seem to tassel. remember. Yeah. Maybe now they should just get a tattoo on their face every time they, they get picked. <laughs> like, a, like a Cafe Nero stamp. Yeah, yeah. Then, then they'd be saying, well, you know, the England players get a tattoo every time they're picked, but the Scottish players only get a tattoo for every season. Yeah, the Scottish players only get a temporary one on their arm. Hey, what do you think you're playing at? Come here. Please give us a few stars and a good review on the Apple Podcast app or elsewhere, for instance, in graffiti on a bridge over the M23. OK, I'll leave it up to you and we'll settle up later. Will you be needing anything else, love? No, with this lot and a bit of luck, we'll be fine. It's time for the part of the podcast where we each choose a record from that wonderful website, 45football.com. Andy, what have you picked this time? Uh, I've gone for Super Cessinatico, uh for Cessna in Italy in uh, 1976. The Corsairs of the Adriatic, as they're referred to in, the, in some of the lyrics. I always think Corsair sounds so much better than a pirate. If somebody says, what do you do for a living? I'm a pirate. Well, OK. If you can say, I'm a Corsair, you're going to say, oh, that sounds like a fascinating line of work. Where are you based? You know, oh, the Barbary Coast, maybe. Um, anyway, um, Chasen, this is a celebration of what turned out to be their best season to date. They finished sixth in the uh, Serie A qualified for the UEFA Cup, though they got knocked out in the first round and were relegated the same year. Um, since then, they've, they've been up and down in the, the, the second division, um, went bankrupt a couple of years ago, but have uh, been reformed as a, a sort of Phoenix club where a small local team um, took over the name and the, and the scene as a successor club. 
Um, and here they are, Super Chess and Article. And Harry, your choice. Well, I'm going for one by the New York Cosmos because um, Gordon Bradley, you mentioned earlier, did end up as manager of New York Cosmos. He didn't. He didn't, unfortunately, return to Easington with tales of uh, picking himself in the USA. Uh, but he, he was manager of New York Cosmos. I think he took over possibly from Ken Furphy. He was from Stockton on Tees, so quite a quite a kind of northeast presence in the New York, an unlikely northeast presence in the New York Cosmos dressing room. And this. This song is a bit sort of a bit Studio 54, but mainly more like a 1970s American soap opera. You can probably picture um, Joan Collins and Linda Evans throwing glasses of champagne into each other's faces while you listen to it, if you so wish. My own choice this time is Brentford Football Club with Come On You Brentford from sometime in the early 1980s. I'd like to say I'd picked it for some fantastic reasons of linking and history, but I picked it because it reminded me of my lovely horse from Father Ted. Now, every month I'm going to chat with someone from a club fanzine or podcast in a mirror of the way in which WSC once acted as a pivot for this country's vibrant zine movement. This time I was joined by Joey from Coventry City's Nye Lamptey Show podcast. Joey, tell us about the Nye Lamptey Show. How long have you been going and what do you do? This will be season nine, I think, which makes it sound like a bit of a, a long-running HBO drama, which <laughs> actually is probably more yeah. like what it is than a lot of football clubs would be. Um, so this is, yeah, this is going to be the ninth year of going into this. It's a Coventry City fans football podcast. So it's just, we look back at the most recent game or games that we've played, which in the Football League, you can often play four in a week. So that's usually quite a lot of time-consuming thing to do. And then we um, have a look forward to see what's going on. We have in the past tinkered with kind of games and stuff, but we're quite miserable. So we've managed to ditch that over the years. Uh, recently, we've branched out very occasionally into speaking to a couple of ex-players um, but largely it's just kind of a reasonably informal look back at what's been So why then the name of the podcast after all I think Lamptey only played something like six games the, So when we did the very first recording we realised that we hadn't got a name for it and somebody suggested it just as a joke um, because we're lazy we just immediately just said yeah that's fine 
So, and that, that was Neil, who was one of our members, and he's mortified by the fact that he suggested it. He doesn't like that. I don't think any of us like the name. I think if I could go back now, we would change it. Although we're not exactly an established brand, I suppose we, we, it's a bit late nine years down the road to change it. But in, we sort of retroactively fitted a meaning to it that was kind of, we promised a great deal of potential, potential which we failed to deliver. I've always felt Coventry have great kits. That's, that, obviously, you are the sky blues, but that blue is unique, isn't it? Do you have any particular favourite? Oh, mate. Well, I mean, this is a real particular... I mean, the, really, football is less for me about what happens on the pitch so much as it is about the kits. That's really what I'm most interested in. The The 90s was obviously the golden era for pretty much everything, but the, for Cov kits, you're talking about an absolute wonderland. So pink, purple and yellow mixture stripes yeah. and the, the kind of red broken egg kind of thing going on there. And, of course, you've got the history of the, the brown kit back in the 60s. Yeah, I mean, just generally speaking, it's a club that, that really excels when it comes to kits. Well, I went to the Strip exhibition in Manchester, um, the Football Museum, recently, and we've got, I think, three kits in there, which I was pretty, I was, I was pretty mm. happy. I remember you having a, a Brazilian for a while. Was I, Isaiasis. I think he may have been yeah, yeah, very that's first, it, Marcus. Yeah, yeah, Marcus Isaias, yeah, another one. I think he'd scored, I think he may have scored a goal possibly for Brazil or at club level from the halfway line and was, was signed pretty much exclusively on that basis, which tells you something about how he ended up being... Um, <laughs> I'm picturing a sort of round collar on his shirt for some reason. I don't even know if yeah, that's it's, accurate. It's a, be- it's a beautiful one. It's another one in my... It's a prized item in my collection. I, yeah, you're right. It's a very unusual... It's a much lighter blue than usual and a very, a pre- a very oppressive collar. But yeah, wonderful work. So into the 21st century, a lot of dark days, far too many to talk about in a brief interview, (laughs) long championship and League One life. How have you kept yourself going? How have you kept the faith? Do you know what? If we look at the the main thing about it has been the one good hangover that we've had and the unexpected um, sort of side effect of the nonsense with the ground moves and everything have been that in a way, at first, it massively, massively drove a wedge between the fan base. And that was toxic and vile. One of the things that it did do is it encouraged this massive away support and that it's turned Cov away games now into a kind of non-event, into a real brilliant, brilliant thing. So there's now a much as a culture of taking much higher numbers to away games based on the fact that we had a number of seasons where people would refuse to go to home games. Mm. That's continued even since we got back to the Rico and now we've left again, obviously. But there's a level to which actually some of the brightest thing that's happened over the last 10 years in what is admittedly a very dark period is the fact that now regularly we see opposition fans saying that is the best support that we've had come to, to our place for a very long time. In League Two, we were outstripping home attendances, so we were taking more away than there were home fans over and over again. And the noise that we're creating and the atmosphere and the fact that things have been slightly better on the pitch, that has been a really wonderful thing about the entire process. But as you say, kind of a chink of light in an otherwise dark period that's very interesting so to talk about the the ground moves is the simple answer here that you should never have left glorious highfield road yeah yeah and it takes a a number of very self-interested people with a great level of self-interest above that of the club and everyone will have their own kind of demon that they will blame. But the reality of it is, is it's took a number of different parties to drive us to where we are. And I'm sure that clubs, fans of other similar clubs that have experienced similar things will tell you the same story. Coventry City Council don't come out blameless. The owners of the club don't come out blameless. Wasps, obviously, trying their hardest again to, to wade in on another football club. Uh, the Wickham Wanderer fans will tell you about, obviously. The, yeah, but there's lots and lots of people that have contributed to their to, to the club's kind of darkest period. But nobody will actually 
sort of like knock back their own self-interest and, and push things forward. We should be back again this season, but ultimately there's a set of NDA bits of communications that would show one thing or another that nobody's quite sure of. What can be almost certain is the fact that it was a 100% possibility that we could have been back playing in Coventry this season, but that we're not again. In between spells at the Rico, there's been six fields and then last season, St Andrews. I think fans of other clubs will be really interested to know how it feels when home isn't home. Right down to going to matches, do you claim your own seat? Do you get fond of a certain area? Do you drink in the same pub in Birmingham or do you just go straight to well, the ground? When, kind of? when we were in Northampton, largely the group of sort of five or six of us that went were able to claim our own stand, such as the, the lack of numbers that were going. Mm. But the you're right, is that it's not. It's not, fun. it's not fun. The thing is, is that the big difference, when we went to six fields originally, we had the points deductions and everything else, but ultimately the first three or four months of it were elevated by the fact that we'd got Callum Wilson up front scoring goals for us. And as awful as it was, when you were there and you'd got this exceptional talent up front, it kind of dissipated a bit because what you want to do is see what's going on on the pitch. And when it's good, then it's great. Then the sort of tail end of that season it all fell apart and it really was very, very bleak. At St Andrews, it's a slightly different situation. One, it's a lot more realistic for people to get to than Northampton was. Secondly, it's a much more of a stadium befitting a club of our size, without, with no disrespect to Northampton, obviously. But the, as well is that we were so exceptional last season, is that it kind of melted away a little bit. Mm. And I think there's a level to which we'd already been through it. And so there was the very serious shock to the system of being moved out the first time. But the second time, as awful as it was, you were a bit sort of immune to it or that you'd been kind of inoculated some way of having it happen before. And St Andrews was just a bit more of a preference. If it, the, the option between St Andrews or Northampton is absolute no-brainer. Mm. What about the latest plan then, the University of Warwick? Does that look likely? Are you in favour? I guess from an outside point of view, it'll seem quite strange to build another new stadium in the city. Yeah, Arena 2040 as I imagine it will probably be if it ever exists. The, 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 the thing is, is that it's a, a very practical idea that the chief execs have been talking about now for probably the best part of seven or eight years. So originally it was going to be, it should have been built by now according to original plans. And what we've got now, though, is a much more kind of practical, we've got a location and we've got a kind of a partner to go in with it. What will be horrendous, although quite befitting of a city like Coventry, is this horrendous white elephant sat on the M6 for everybody to drive past and ask what is that as it's set on fire. Everybody hates the Rico and everybody wants us to be playing there. And I think the problem is that the relationship between the city's council and the owners is now at such an incredible impasse that both of them would prefer to see an entirely new stadium built in the city rather than ever have to deal with each other again, which is ludicrous, but then it's all ludicrous. And more bright matters though, Mark Robbins, what a job. And it sounds like playing great football as well. Yeah, I, everyone loves him and obviously I love him. I had sort of previously accused him of lacking a kind of a footballing identity. And then this season he's playing this kind of 3-6-1 <laughs> that's come completely out of left field with sort of... With midfielders playing in positions that I didn't I hadn't even realized existed until this season and that, that was the one thing that you could have possibly have, have leveled at him that he's completely eradicated this season he's I think it go it has to go down as saying it's not about what he's done exclusively on the pitch he's kind of bedded in a long needed recruitment and scouting system that didn't exist previously he has kind of reinvigorated links between the fans and the owners and the club itself. There's a whole really massive job that he's done that doesn't, he, 
he's a, an absolute messiah at the moment amongst Cov fans, but really he deserves every bit of it because it's a massive, massive job. Probably worth saying as well, we've also got um, A.D. Vivash, who's the assistant manager. It's not a coincidence, I shouldn't expect, that him coming in from Chelsea as he did, things turned around on the pitch very quickly after he turned mm. round, after he came in. He seems to have been a very central figure in why we've been so successful as well. Either that or with 3-6-1, he's a keen Sabutio player and he just brought the <laughs> tactics straight from the cloth. And the sad thing I noticed on Twitter yesterday was the passing away of one of our When Saturday Comes contributors. Yeah, just as this podcast was being put together, we heard that WC contributor Seb Patrick had passed away suddenly. Um, Seb was only in his late 30s and he had a young family. It's obviously an awful thing. Um, He first wrote for us in 2009, became one of our regular TV reviews, as well as writing about his team, Liverpool. So awful news, and we'd like to pass on our condolences to his family and friends. There's a GoFundMe for Seb's family that we're going to mention on the WC Twitter account. We're going to retweet some links to some of his articles. You've been listening to the When Saturday Comes podcast, produced and edited by me, Daniel Gray. Please have a think about supporting us on patreon.com slash whensaturdaycomes, which will give you access to bonus podcast material and other goodies. And please do join me, Andy and Harry, again next time for more vital, topical and half-decent chatter.